I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We had recited the words of the Apostles' Creed uh, just before, and in um, our catechism sermon, we've been working through the various articles of the Apostles' Creed. In this Lord's Day, we come up to thinking about what it means when we confess that Christ has ascended into heaven, that he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and that from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So what do we mean by Christ's heavenly session in heaven as he's seated at God's right hand? And is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so we're going to reflect upon that and those truths from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. We won't be covering everything in these verses here, um, but uh, drawing out what's significant, again, for Christ's present session in heaven as he sits in power at the Father's right hand and is coming again. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, this is the holy and inspired word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the workings of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So far from God's word. We're going to turn now in the back of the hymnal to the catechism. Lord's Day 19. You'll find that on page 880 in the back of the hymnal. So I'll read the question, uh, the three questions there, and we'll respond together with the answers. So question 50, why the next words, and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. How does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, He pours out gifts from heaven upon his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and preserves us from all enemies. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. So far from the catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as many of you are aware, if the Apostle Paul took an English class in our day, he would of course fail it. 
And I say that uh, because the verses we had just read from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, constitutes a single sentence, one very long, complex sentence that the Apostle Paul writes. Rather than keeping things very simple, the Apostle Paul writes long sentences. And the point, though, to see, though, is that the Apostle Paul is holding all of these things so tightly together as he speaks to us about the power of Christ given to the church, the power of Christ. Paul, as he prays for the church here, desires that they would understand, as he says in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And the Apostle Paul will then go on to explain that power in terms of God raising Christ from the dead, seating him at his right hand, and then giving him to the church. And so as we think then about the benefit that the ascension and the session of Christ is for the church, now we see it here reflected for us in Ephesians chapter 1. And this is what the catechism draws out and what we're going to mostly focus on. It says uh, regarding the, the phrase that he sits at the right hand of God, that Christ ascended to heaven there to show that he is the head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. And these are, this is what comes out for us in Ephesians chapter 1. Now we don't have time to draw out everything, but I want to think about this in terms of four questions. Four questions to draw out the power of Christ on behalf of his church today. First, the first question is how shall we see and understand Christ's power today? Second, who shall we look to? Thirdly, what shall we look to and why should we look to these things? So the how, the who, the what, and the why. Very briefly to consider these questions. First, how. As the Apostle Paul here is praying for the church, a reasonable question to ask would be, how would the church in Ephesus know and perceive if, the, if Paul's prayer has been answered? In in what sense, what would they look to and say, here is the answer to Paul's prayer? Well, notice Paul prays for them in verse uh, 16 and following, rather verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What an interesting phrase. The eyes of your hearts enlightened. And we often speak of our five senses. I was touching, smelling, tasting, hearing, seeing. And, and within a naturalistic worldview, which we're often so prone uh, to live according to, we assume that if we can't touch it, we can't taste it, if we can't see it, if we can't smell it, then it must not be real. A naturalistic worldview says that all that exists is what I can't perceive with my senses. But the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven beyond our sight bursts a naturalistic worldview. And the Apostle Paul here says in some sense that there is a sixth sense to all people, the eyes of the heart, the spirit in each person. All people, Paul is saying, have eyes of the heart to perceive what is otherwise unseen. And Paul also goes on to say that either the eyes of our hearts are darkened in sin so that we're blind to these realities, or as Paul prays for the Ephesians here, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, 
the light switch is turned on and we now can begin to see. And so Paul, as he says, as is answering the question, how shall we understand, how shall we see the power of Christ at work and operating today? He's not saying look to your five senses as if the power of Christ will be tangible to you merely through what you see with your physical eyes, but rather the power of Christ is seen today by faith as the people of God have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. The same reality is reflected on in in Hebrews chapter 1, rather chapter 2, for example. Just to read a few verses here. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author writes this. Now in putting everything in, everything in, subj- in subjection to Christ, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything, everything in subjection to him. Right? So Paul, the, or, the, or the author of Hebrews here is saying that we do not yet see with our physical eyes everything in subjection to him, yet he has been crowned king of kings and lord of lords. Yet he has been placed at the Father's right hand. All authority has been given to him, yet at present we do not yet see it with our physical eyes. He goes on to say, but we see him, namely Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So So on the one hand, he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And yet on the other hand, he says, yet we see him. How do we make sense of those two statements? He's saying we do not see with our physical eyes, but by the eyes of the heart, we see Jesus Christ, who is otherwise unseen. This is what he says later in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The present reign of Christ, unseen and yet true, and perceived ultimately by the eyes of the heart. And so as the Apostle Paul prays for this reality, he's praying that the eyes of their hearts would be illumined, that their faith, which is the conviction of things not seen, would be strengthened in the reality that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and been seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's how the Apostle Paul desires for them to understand this reality and what he desires for us as well as his people. That our our hearts, that your hearts and the eyes of your heart would be illumined and enlightened to see Christ. That's why God has given us his word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, The path that is illumined is one that is otherwise unseen. The word brings into focus these otherwise unseen realities. And there's great power, as we're going to see, and great strength for Christ's church as they walk by faith and not by sight, as they walk not according to their physical eyes, but by the eyes of their hearts. Because through the eyes of our hearts, we see Christ reigning. We see Christ as one never to die again, and one who is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. If I can see that, if I can be convicted of that reality, 
then there is nothing that I will ever be afraid of in this life. If I can see Christ, the one who has loved me, the one who has died for me, seated in heaven, bearing my name on his heart before the Father, then nothing can shake me in this life. And therefore, Paul is praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened by God. He knows that this must be a sovereign work of God. He knows that it's God who must do this work, and which is why he couches it within a prayer, that God would open their eyes. And if we today, if you today perceive that reality, and you live according to Christ, having ascended into heaven, out of the sight of our physical eyes, then give thanks to the God the Father who has revealed this to you. Not flesh and blood shows us this reality, but it's our Father who reveals this. And so that is the first question, the how. The second is who. Right? As God illumines our hearts, opens up the eyes of our hearts to see, well, what are we looking at? Who are we looking at? Rather, and, and the Apostle Paul is saying that as the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, we are looking to none other than Jesus Christ. And not Jesus Christ conceived after our own image or Jesus Christ conceived according to our agendas and our desires and our likes, but Jesus Christ as raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's to Jesus that we are to look. It's to Jesus that as we look to him, we find great strength for the Christian life here below. It was thought, especially throughout Ephesus, the city that Paul is writing to, that the gods would often manifest themselves. In fact, in the city of Ephesus, there was this great temple uh, built to Artemis, and this uh, obsession with magic and controlling the spiritual realm was all over the, the, the city of Ephesus, and it's, simply, uh, it's very similar to our own day as well. Uh, Susanna's parents uh, do... Um, uh, ministry uh, on ver- various college campuses. Susanna is my wife, if you didn't know. And, um, <laughs> and her, uh, her parents were, were recently talking to them, and they were reminding us how, how alarmed they've been that so many people on these college campuses have been identifying themselves as neo-pagans, worshiping Zeus and worshiping Thor and these various other gods. So the rise of paganism is not just in the Bible days. It's all around us, especially as we see uh, in our own city as well. And not only just mere paganism, but even just superstition. The idea of superstition um, is prevalent all around us. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that these Gods that they are seeking to control and these superstitions, these magical amulets and various other things are trying to control the realms of the spirit. That all of those things are not to be looked to because our eyes are to be fixed upon Jesus Christ alone. That he is the true manifestation of God. He is the God who has come and revealed himself. And it's to him that the eyes of our hearts are ultimately to look. And so who shall we look to? Who shall we understand? Well, it is the risen and seated Christ in heaven. Thirdly, what shall we see? Right As we look to Christ ascended into heaven, seated at God's right hand, he's desiring that we understand the power that God has given to us in Christ. Note again, verse 19, that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, this statement here comes as a kind of crescendo. 
Uh, Paul is building up this in his prayer in terms of what he desires for them to understand. He begins by saying, what is the hope of his calling? Then he builds further, what is the glorious wealth of his inheritance among the saints? And then again comes to this crescendo, the supreme greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul desires that we know the power of Christ, that we might not be afraid and fearful in, uh, in this life. And you might say, well, how does, the, how does God raising Christ from the dead and seating him in heaven, how does that become a benefit to the church? How does that empower the church? Well, Paul goes on to say that he has seated him far above, verse 21, all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and notice this, and gave him as head over all things to the church. The one who has been raised, the one who has been seated in heaven, has also been given to his church. Christ has been given to his church to be our head, to be the one who rules us, the one who reigns and governs us. And as our king, as our head, he preserves and increases us. He defends and keeps us from our enemies. This is what the catechism said in question 51. It says the one benefit that we have of Christ being our head is that by his power, he defends us and preserves us from all enemies. And the enemies that the Apostle Paul primarily has in mind here, where he says, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, are, of course, spiritual enemies. He'll pick this up later in chapter 6 when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of darkness, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness. And this is uh, simply uh, captured within um, the Reformed faith as well. For example, in Belgian Confession, Article 12, we're reminded of these powerful enemies that seek to destroy the church. Belgian Confession, Article 12, says this regarding uh, the angels whom God has created. It says, Some of them have fallen from the excellence in which God created them into eternal perdition, and the others have persisted and remained in their original state by the grace of God. The devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it like thieves with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deceptions. So then by their own wickedness, they are condemned to everlasting damnation, daily awaiting their torments. The Apostle Paul is saying that though we face these great and powerful enemies that would seek to separate us from the love of God, who would seek to destroy his church, Christ has been um, seated far above all of them. And he is bringing them all in subjection to him. And therefore, the strength of God's church and the hope that we have that the church shall not fall rests in the fact that Christ is seated in heaven and has been given to his church. These enemies that would otherwise overwhelm us and overpower us 
Christ stands over defending his church and keeping his church until the day that he returns and vanquishes all of his enemies and his foes. The present reign of Christ that we are to look to is one that must be fulfilled in his coming again to judge the living and the dead. It's why the catechism, I think, so wisely keeps together in one Lord's Day the session of Christ at God's right hand today and is coming again in power to judge the living and the dead as one who has ascended into heaven and one whose power we see today only by the eyes of the heart will one day be made visible even to our physical eyes when faith will become sight. And it's then when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead that he will, as the catechism says, cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. This is the great comfort that we have then as the church. And that leads to our final question. We've asked the how. How do we perceive these things? Through the eyes of the hearts. Who are we to perceive? Well, Jesus Christ. What his power shown in his present reign at the Father's right hand. And finally, then, we want to think about the why in terms of the benefit of Christ's present reign for his church uh, today. And there's two uh, main things I want to get at. And for the sake of time, um, I want to read just two quotes uh, from uh, Gerhardus Voss uh, to draw out some of these, uh, these two points, these two benefits uh, for the church. Uh, the first, the first benefit, uh, Gerhardus Voss writes this, saying, The unlimited dominion of Christ is necessary to protect the church from its enemies. The church is in the midst of the world and still has the evil of the world in its own bosom. So, if it is to be secure, if Messiah's Reformed Fellowship in the midst of New York City is to be secure, then its head must have dominion over the world. Its history, the history of the church, then is intertwined with the history of the world. Christ has therefore assumed dominion over the world for the benefit of his church. He exercises it on behalf of God for this kingdom of power too is and remains an official kingdom of God. Right? So Christ has assumed dominion over the world he has been crowned with glory and honor for the benefit of his church. We read about those enemies as expressed in Belgian Confession 12. The Apostle Paul also warns against such enemies in latter times coming into the church, seducing them and leading them astray. But Christ guards and keeps his church. And therefore, our security in the midst of New York City is not our numbers. We're not quite large, 100 plus people here. We're not quite uh, influential in the midst of this city. Our bank account isn't something to marvel at. And yet we are secure because Jesus Christ is the head of his church here. It's what we confess every Lord's Day. We gather under the reign of King Jesus who defends and preserves us and keeps us. And therefore, we do not need to cater to the world, to compromise with the world, to appease the world, to draw the applause of the world. Because our security does not come from the world, but from Christ who reigns over all. His unlimited dominion, having all authority in heaven and on earth, is for the benefit of his church today. 
that he might one day present us spotless and blameless before him to the glory of God the Father. And therefore, when we think of Christ's um, unlimited dominion, we are reminded of the benefit it is because he has been given to us. He's been given to you as your head to preserve and uh, keep you until that day. So that's the first benefit uh, that we want to think about. The second one uh, comes, again, just one more quote from Gerhardus Voss. He says this, The Christ has entered heaven to prepare, and this one's more positive, right? The first one is to guard and to keep. This one is more of the positive element of Christ's reign in heaven today. The Christ has entered heaven to prepare a place there for the members of his body. They all will come there, not only as he is there, but because he is there. The head draws the members after himself, for the body is the fullness of him who fills all and all. And because the head is there, because Christ is there in heaven, both in body and soul, the members have the assurance that their flesh too, which they must put off here, is not lost and will not become identified with the earth but that it again will sprout and like the plant that grows upward will seek heaven. The reign of Christ today in heaven not only means that we are secure, but also means that we are bound to be where he is. Not only as he is in heaven, but because he is in heaven. There is a vital link, a bond, a union between Christ and his church, even as a head is united to its body. The body must be where its head is. If it is a living body, and the body of Christ is a body full of resurrection life. And therefore, though our bodies waste, and though our bodies decay, and though our bodies will be laid in the dirt and return to dust, yet Christ will raise them to be where he is. And his present place in heaven guarantees us of that reality. We said before that Christ's reign in heaven necessitates, requires that he come again to judge his enemies. If today he is king of kings and lord of lords, then that reign must be realized on earth when he comes again. And in the same sense, if we are united to this head who is in heaven, then by necessity he must come again for us, his people, as the catechism reminds us, when he comes at the end of the age to take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and the glory of of heaven. And therefore, this is the power of God given to his church in the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. He keeps us secure until that day, and he guarantees that we will not ultimately be identified with this creation that is passing away, but that we will seek heaven, that we will arrive on the undying lands. And the shores of heaven where we will bask in the joy and the glory of our God and our King forever. This is the wonderful benefit to have Christ as our head. And one last point as we come to a conclusion here. Just to cap things off. We would, be a, a, um, we would miss the point if we didn't realize the fact that to have Christ as our head is not something we have earned And not something we deserve, but he has been given to us by God's grace. I I was really struck when you look at the various verbs 
in this passage in Ephesians. In verse 20, it says that God the Father worked this great power in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, right? So he raised him and he seated him. And in line with that, we read in verse 22 that he also gave him, right? The the same father who raised him from the dead, seated him at, at his right hand, also gave him as head over his church, right? We see the power of God in raising him from the dead. We see the power of God in seating him at his right hand, But also we must see the power of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God in giving him as head over his church. Christ has been given by the Father as a token of his love for his people that, that we might be secure and that we might have heaven as our ultimate destiny, as those who must be where Christ is, not only as he is there in heaven, but because he is there in heaven. The benefits of having Christ, the risen and ascended king, as our head are innumerable. Pastor Paul and I recently got a book by uh, G.K. Beale uh, entitled The Risen and Ascended Christ, Union with the Risen and Ascended Christ. It's 500 plus pages of explaining the benefits of our union with Christ as risen and ascended um, from the New Testament. Really, the whole New Testament flows from this reality We've only scratched the surface, but we must live out of this reality this week, tomorrow, and for the remainder of the life of Messiah's Reformed Fellowship until Christ comes again, owning Christ as our head, resting secure in his power, and trusting that he will bring us to be where he is in heaven to enjoy the glory and the joy of our God forever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you as we have read in your word, that you have raised Christ from the dead, that you have seated him at your right hand, and that you have given him to us, his people, as our head to reign and rule over us. Thank you that he is our king, unlike the kings of this world, one who gives, one who serves, one who loves his people, and one who brings us to be where he is. So Father, may we rest secure, not looking to the things of this world for our safety for our perseverance in this life. But may we rest secure knowing that Christ, seated at your right hand, is watching over us, is guarding us, and is keeping us, even though we face a world full of enemies, more powerful than us. Every throne and dominion and power and authority, though they wage their powers against us, yet we rest secure because Christ, our head, has been raised above all of them and will one day vanquish them, the last enemy, to be destroyed as death. And Father, may you also, as we think upon Christ's ascension and his present session at your right hand, may our thoughts and our minds uh, be raised heavenward to seek the things that are above where Christ is. And Father, may our lives then be changed as we are not consumed with the present uh, world that is passing away this age, but with the age to come as Christ returns and ushers us into that eternal glory and that eternal joy that awaits us as his people. And so keep us faithful until that day. Strengthen our faith and increase our hope. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.